covering a lot of territory this morning. And if you were with us last week, I did, I think, four verses, and it took me uh, maybe just shy of an hour's worth of time. So prepare yourselves. I hope you brought a sack lunch today because I think we're covering two chapters. So we may be here for a few hours. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we are covering a lot of territory. So we're going to break up this passage kind of in three points this morning. And so we're not going to read the whole passage all in one sitting here. Uh, I want to encourage you, there was a reading guide that went out last week. And uh, I think if we ran out of those, we can print out some more. Be reading uh, each and every week in this series, because I might not be able to read the whole of every chapter that we're going to be going through. Um, so we, I would love for you to have your hearts prepared before you come in on Sunday mornings to be reading along uh, with us, uh, just in case there's a portion that we have to skip over due to time. So we're going to begin this morning uh, as you're turning in your Bibles. Chapter 1, we're going to cover verses 4 to 11 first. We're going to kind of back up so it sets the, the setting here of where we're heading uh, with Nehemiah's prayer. So the Bible says this, 1-4, Nehemiah, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Just a reminder, Nehemiah had, had heard the report of, of the condition of Jerusalem. The walls were torn down, right? They were burned. Uh, things were not looking well. And so when he heard those things, it saddened him. He mourned. Then he responds in this way in verse 5. He says, Lord, the God of heaven... The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there. And bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by, the great, by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of of this man, and it concludes with this, I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. The walls are broken, right? God's people are in trouble, and in God's sovereignty, you see, none of this stuff just so happened, none of it is happenstance, but in God's sovereignty, the right man, Nehemiah, is in the right position, the cupbearer to the king, to influence that king. This morning we look to the leadership of Nehemiah in raising up God's people for the task to rebuild their city. And yet we begin his journey, his mission, his calling, not with some boisterous outspoken sermon, 
Not a rebuke of sin against the Israelites or condemnation of the pagan king of Persia. Rather, he begins his confident mission where? On his knees, right? On his knees. Which brings us to our first point this morning. Nehemiah approached God with confident prayer. We just finished a series, right, and on the Lord's Prayer called Change the World. And we can see Nehemiah's heart wanting to change the world, change the, the circumstances for his people. And where did he begin? He didn't go out and start chopping down trees and slinging arrows. No, he got down on his knees before God and he approached God with confident prayer. What's amazing is the timing of this. I promise you, I did not plan to do that series in the Lord's Prayer and then open up the book of Nehemiah with such a comparable prayer to God, right? We witness a man of God, Nehemiah, conveying kind of a precursor to the Lord's Prayer. We see echoes of the words that we learned just a few weeks ago that Jesus would teach his disciples. He begins what? How does he come before God? He begins with adoration. He declares who God is. He, he begins with adoration. He begins with affection and love for God. What did we learn just a few weeks ago? What's the first thing we do when we come to God? We recognize his glory. We adore him. We want to set our mind on where God is at. Because it writes the path for the rest of our prayer. Every prayer must begin with remembering who we are talking to. I have to constantly remind myself of this because when I come before God, there's always some sort of desperation there. And so it's, God, can you do this? Wait, back up. Okay, I'm praying to the sovereign God of the universe. God, I adore you. I love you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life, to die on the cross for me and defeat death in the grave through his resurrection. I need to set my mind right before I come to God with my needs, my wants, and my desires. Every prayer must begin with remembering who we are talking to. We're talking to the God who spoke to Moses through a burning bush. The God who spoke through the mouth of a donkey. The God who crushed the enemies of Israel by sending plague upon plague. And the God who delivered us from sin through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's where we begin. We begin our prayer there in the majesty and the presence of God, and remembering who he is. And because of that now, as we read through Nehemiah's prayer, because of his reflection on the greatness of God, what does that drive him to do? When he recognizes how great God is, what does he do? He repents. He pours out his heart, not only for his sin, but for the, the sin of his people, for the sin of Israel, recognizing the greatness of God 
drove him not to ask God for a bunch of stuff, but to come with a heart of repentance, confession, confessing who he was and how he had fallen short and how his fathers had fallen short and how his ancestors had fallen short. Nehemiah pours out his heart for the sin of his people and himself. What a position of of humility, humbled, recognizing the greatness of God. And because of that greatness, he confesses to God first, Lord, this is how we have fallen short. And lastly, he remembered the promises of God. He remembers the promises of God. Let's read verse 9. The promise of God is this, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Isn't that beautiful? If you call upon the name of the Lord, I will bring you in. If you have ever fallen short of the glory and holiness of God, which should be every one of us putting up our hands, this is good news. That the people that are exiled, that are at the furthest horizon, the people in your life, think about them, the person in your life that you think is the furthest from Christ. If you return to me, I will bring them To the place I have chosen, what? As a dwelling. Because when you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. It is living within you. Nehemiah remembered the promise of God. He doesn't just wallow in the sin. He calls God and says, God, you said you were going to do this. And how did he remember the promises of God? Did they just come to him? Did he absorb the word through osmosis, holding it up to his head, hoping it would soak in? I just got my greasy forehead on my nice Bible up here. How did he remember the promises of God? Through knowing the word. Through knowing the word. Our next point. Nehemiah was, the man, was a man of the word. What do I mean by word? He was the man of scripture. He knew God's word. He prayed. And through his prayer, you can see that Nehemiah knows about God. And Nehemiah knows God's word. Why? Because he calls God on his promises. He says, God, I know that you are truthful to your word because we're exiled. We were scattered. That literally happened. They were scattered. Some of them were sent down to Egypt. Some of them to Babylon. Some of them stayed behind, just like God's word said. But Nehemiah remembered the promises of God in his word. He was a man of the word. Nehemiah's prayer is filled with references to, to scripture. 
I would encourage you this week as you're, as you're reading through, read this passage again. Look at the references that are listed at the bottom. And if you go and read those, they're reflected in the prayer of Nehemiah. He's praying things from Scripture. And I think there's an important lesson in that for us. An incredible application. Read God's Word and pray God's Word. He was a man of the Word. Let's read Deuteronomy 4, 25 to 31. It's going to remind us of something that we just read. It says this. After you've had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you may quickly perish from the land, that is the promised land, that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. What does it say? The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. Did that stuff happen? Yes. But listen to this. But, but if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days, what? You will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. Do we not see echoes of this in the prayer of Nehemiah? He knew God's word and he prayed God's word back to God. He studied God's word. And I know the excuse this morning because I've said it to myself I'm too busy. I'm too busy to set aside time to, to read God's word. I got to get my kids up. I got to see them off to school. I'm tired. I need to sleep a few more minutes or hours. I'll do it later. That's every day, actually. The gym with me, you know, I'll get up in the morning. I'm going to go run a couple miles. Then I put it off. I'll, I'll do it this afternoon. That's nah, too hot. I'll do it this evening when it cools off. Nope, the Dodger game's way too good on the TV, right? There's so many things that we have in front of us, just like those things that are good for us, like exercise. God's word is good for us, but we can make up so many excuses as to why we don't have time for God's word. And yet this incredibly busy man, the cupbearer to the king, he wasn't too busy. He wasn't preoccupied with everything else in life. God's word, we can see when he prayed, God's word was springing forth out of his words, every single word. God's word had taken root in his heart. 
And because of this, this is why this is so important. Because he knew God's word, when things got tough, when things got difficult, when life looked bleak for his people, he could lean into God's word in this time of need. And it just came from him in his prayer. He held God to his promises when he was in mourning and when he was in pain and when he was hurting, he, can, he called out to God and said, but God, you promised. And the only way that he knew of these promises was why? Because he knew God's word. Church, do you know God's promises when you're in those times of hurting and pain? You need to know those as the hope of your life. And the only way you're going to know those is if you're invested in studying God's word. And entrusting God's word to your heart. Isn't it just like a child? See, Nehemiah reminds me of a child here. He's a child of God. Isn't it just like a child to remember promises, right? Man, my kids remember promises. And they're going to hold you to them. They can't remember anything else. <laughs> Do the dishes, take out the trash, mow the lawn, try not to hit the toilet seat if you get my drift. <laughs> can't manage to remember those. But man, if you mention something fun, we're going to go do something fun? Maybe. That evening, that weekend, you better believe they can't remember anything else, but they're going to remember that thing, right? We see in Nehemiah here, God, don't remember any of this other stuff. Remember your promise to us. It's the kind of relationship that we have with, with God. We see that the covenant is, is conditional, but it's also unconditional because they keep coming back to God and God keeps Honoring and being faithful to them, even in their unfaithfulness. It's the beauty of our relationship with God is that he forgives us time and time and time and time again. And he says, come back to me. And I will dwell with you. I will be with you. I love you. I want to encourage you, be like that child. Hold God to his promises. Pray his promises back to him. And let me assure you, it's not like he forgets. He remembers. Okay? He remembers. But practically, this is for you. You need to remember the promises of God. Because when you come in here and you're a heap and a mess because life is hitting you hard, you have to remember the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Be like a child Hold God to his promises. And the only way you will know of these is if you are reading, what? God's word. I'm not telling you that for me. I'm telling you that for you because it's the great hope that within this we have incredible encouragement. We see God's love poured out for us on the cross. And we have the hope of the future that God wins. Lastly, within his prayer, he's kingdom-minded. He's kingdom-minded. 
Again, Nehemiah 1.9. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Not only does Nehemiah come in, in prayer, in confession, in holding God to his promises, but he remembers God's promises for his people. It's not just personal. It's not just about me. God, this is about your people. This is about your kingdom. God's plan and God's people for Nehemiah came before everything in his life. We talked about this last week. He had everything. He was in luxury. He was hanging out with the king. And yet, God's promise to his people was more important than comfort in the present. They came before everything. And so I want to challenge you this morning, church. Are you mindful of the greater kingdom that you serve? Are you mindful of the kingdom? Are you mindful of the church? Does your heart break at the false teaching that is going on in churches across our country? Does your heart break when you see the people of God in China and other far-off places that are being persecuted? Are you kingdom-minded? Do those things, just like Nehemiah, do they bring you to your knees in adoration and confession and saying, God, you promised. God, I want to see Jesus return in glory and fix all of this. Because we can't do it. God, we need you. He was kingdom-minded. Are you praying for that kingdom? And lastly, as we see in, in Nehemiah's life, are you acting on behalf of the kingdom. Nehemiah did not stay on his knees. He didn't stay on his knees. He gets up. It brings us to our second major point this morning. Nehemiah approached the king with a confident petition. Nehemiah approached the king. He acted. So many of us get stuck in prayer. We're always praying about it. Hey, do you mind sweeping the parking lot out there for me? Yeah, let me pray about that. You think you could help us with collection around here in the morning? Yeah, I need to pray about that. We get stuck in prayer. Nehemiah both prayed, but then he said, okay, it's time to do something about this. Enough's enough. We're active people. And so he approached the king with a, with a confident petition. Nehemiah lays it all on the line. We have to set the stage here because I don't think we can wrap our minds around, around what Nehemiah is facing here. He's in the presence of a foreign king. He's a slave. Even though he's living the good life in slavery, he is a slave. He's a slave to the king. He's disposable. So Nehemiah is laying it all on the line. If the king is dissatisfied with what Nehemiah is asking, which is to help his people rebuild this wall to protect the city, to protect Jerusalem, guess what? If, the Nehemiah, if, 
if the king is dissatisfied with what he's asking, guess what's going to happen to Nehemiah? He dead. He's gone. Or if he doesn't die, he's going to wish he was dead. I think we miss that in the story. He laid it all on the line. And yet the time had come. He could no longer hold back his, his emotions, right? His emotions in this passage, we'll read in just a minute. They burst forth during the celebration. Again, a dangerous predicament. His emotions come, come bursting forth. It wasn't like the old Leslie Gore song, right? It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. I had to Google who actually sang that song, I'll admit it. (laughs) I should have kept that in my back pocket, huh? (laughs) You see, this was the king's party, and Nehemiah is skating on thin ice with a downcast face in the midst of this celebration. Let's read it. Nehemiah 2, 1 to 8. In the month of Nizan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and they answered the king. If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take? When will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, So he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. Nehemiah laid it all on the line. He laid it all on the line. He knew what was on the line here. This was it. But here's the beauty of this. We're going to put together a little timeline here. Our next point this morning. He was patient, okay? He was patient. Nehemiah was patient in his request. And you're probably thinking, well, no, he just prayed, and then now he's talking to the king. The beginning of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 1.1, it says, In the month of Kislev, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah and then tells Nehemiah everything that's going on, right? So we remember that month. And then he prays. We just talked about that. 
Chapter 2 begins with this. In the month of Nizan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Okay, what are these months? The month of Kislev is probably November, December. And then the month mentioned at the beginning of chapter 2 is March or April. That's a pretty long distance of time, isn't it? Four months is what we can gather. Around four months, Nehemiah prayed, mourned, fasted, and reflected on God's word. That's amazing. Because if, if you're anything like me, like, God answered this prayer yesterday, right? Hurry up. But Nehemiah was patient. We find here in this in this opening passage, how incredibly wise Nehemiah is. He's just a wise and trusting leader. He takes his time. But the moment has come. His patience has brought him to this, this place now where it is appropriate. His emotions, his, the depth of his mourning for his people, it is being seen on his face. And in a sense, we see God open the door because now it's the king saying, Hey, dude, what's up with your face? You look sad. This is my celebration. It's not your party and you can cry if you want to, right? This is my party. What's going on? And Nehemiah was patient. And I think the scripture is very clear that God is just sovereignly working and weaving his way through this story. That at just the right time, Nehemiah's emotions are bursting forth out of his body. That you can see on his face what is going on. And it's the king that says, hey, what's going on? Why are you sad? You've never been like this before. He waited for just the right time. The other thing that we forget is it's this same king that had decreed that the building stop. How dangerous is this? Hey, king, you made a mistake. Can we go actually build those walls after all? We miss all those little things. The building had been decreed to stop because the enemies of Israel didn't like it. Why, if they're a part of this this kingdom, would they need protective walls? Because God wanted a place of refuge for his people. And so there's an incredible boldness in Nehemiah that he puts his life on the line, that he's patient. He's just patient enough. He's not like a bull in a china shop, right? He's just patient enough to, to wait for that time. And God acts. Our last point on this section, Nehemiah was God-centered. He was God-centered. The king says this, says, the king said to me, what is it you want? Now, Nehemiah had been praying for four months. What does he do right before he answers the king? He prays. Says, then I prayed to, to the God of heaven. And what? Answered the king. Constantly Nehemiah, I mean, we can see that he's such a godly man. I'm, I'm certain that he probably didn't say, hey, time out, king. I need to pray real quick. 
It's, it's like one continuous sentence, and then he prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. I mean, we can see that Nehemiah is so close to God that his prayer is probably just constantly working through him. He's been on his knees for four months praying to God, mourning, fasting. And at this moment, once again, one last time before this request, God help me. Okay, king, this is what I want. He was God-centered. The humility of Nehemiah shines. How often do we try to, we want to hurry things up for God. God, I got this. Hang out. I got this. And Nehemiah waits for God, and he calls on him one last time before he's going to request this from the king. He's humble. And we'll find out in the coming weeks that Nehemiah is an incredibly godly, wise leader. And yet, at this point, his leadership principles don't come bursting through. He takes one more step back. Okay, God, guide me. All right, here we go. He's a humble leader. As if four months of praying wasn't enough, I'm sure that he's confident of his position as God's appointed person to lead. He remembered God's promises. He knew God's word. He knew the actions that were already going on through Ezra in Jerusalem. He knew his people were in trouble. And yet he, he approaches the king. He approaches the king in, in confidence. Even though he's downcast, he's confident because once again, one more time, I have my God with me. I'm going to pray to him one more time. God's got my back. He prays right in that moment. Nehemiah is centered on God's plan. He's centered on God's word. And I think we see clearly that he had confidence that, that God would handle everything. That Nehemiah is willing to say, this is the day. This is the day I'm willing to lay my life down for my people and for God's promises. This is the day. Just like Abraham was confident that God was going to provide a sacrifice as he was called to sacrifice his son. Nehemiah is confident that God's going to come through. I think that's such an important lesson for us followers of Christ to be confident in knowing the promises of God, knowing the means that God works, being connected to him through prayer and worship and studying his word that we can have those moments of confidence in our life and say, okay, it's time to act. It's time to open my mouth and say something. It's time for me to proclaim the gospel to that person that's in the farthest horizon away. It's time. It's time for me to take that, that leap of faith that God's been pushing me towards. It's time. And how did he know that? Again, he was on his knees. He was in the word of God. He knew the promises of God. Church, I want to challenge you on that. Do you have that kind of confidence? I'm not saying that to heap guilt on you this morning. God's grace covers you. If you fall short in praying, welcome to the team. Me too. Today's a new day. Start praying. Today's a new day. Start reading. 
Today's a new day. Start discovering those promises that God has all throughout his word. And call him on those. God, you said this. God, you said you would work this way. I want to see you do that, not selfishly, so that I can say, that's my God right there working. That's my God in all his glory, sweeping across this land, seeing lives transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nehemiah was God-centered. And finally, number three, our last major point. Nehemiah had confidence that God would handle the task at hand. Nehemiah had confidence that God would handle the task at hand. He was confident in what God was going to do. I'm not sure Nehemiah was incredibly confident in his own abilities. It's about what I feel like when I walk down this aisle up here and prepare myself to come up and preach the word of God to people. Like, God, why are you using me? How can you speak through a broken man like myself? Speak the truth of God's word, but God drags me up here each and every week in his faithfulness, wanting people in this room to hear the gospel proclaimed and to hear about the ways that God has acted and worked in history and the ways that he is continuing to work. Nehemiah had confidence that God would handle the task at hand. You see, now, let's fast forward in the story. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. We're not going to read all this whole passage. We're going to pick up a couple places. He arrives. He goes out in secret at night with a few men that he can actually trust because he doesn't know who he can trust in this land. It's kind of a hostile situation. Their enemies are encroaching upon them. We don't know which of the Jews within Jerusalem are actually tipping off their enemies. And so Nehemiah takes a few trusted people to go and he examines the walls. He's checking things out. He's making a plan. He's getting ready to lead his people. He had confidence that God would handle the task at hand. We'll pick up the passage in verse 17 and then we'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 20. So he's done this. He's gone out. He's looked at the walls. <coughs> 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. And what the king had said to me. They replied this. Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But Sambalot the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it. And they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? You see, the the king had declared that the work stop. They're calling him out. I answered them by saying, 
The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. The implication of that is that you're not a part of us, so you're against us. Nehemiah had confidence that God would handle the task at hand. Right? The walls were broken down. They're burned, destroyed. The words in the hands of their enemies were against them. They had no hope. And yet, Nehemiah's godly leadership inspires God's people to strengthen their hands. That's what the Word of God says, that they strengthened their hands. A seemingly insurmountable task, and they were ready. It doesn't seem like they even batted an eye. Nehemiah, we're ready to go. We're ready to follow your plan. How much more are we to be ready? Christ, our leader, has equipped us. And it may seem, you may be able to relate to this story, right? The walls are burned down and destroyed. I don't have anything left. Everything's against you. Relational problems, money problems, kid problems, spiritual problems, health problems, insurance problems. You have everything in your face. Jesus' purpose in all your troubles, hear this, here's the promise, is worth it. Jesus' purpose in the things that you are facing in your life is worth it. Because he's working out your faith and he's growing you in Christ's likeness to become more and more and more like him. And the thing is, is that we're so stubborn that that doesn't happen through easy things. It happens through the difficult things in life. Because when things are easy, again, if you're anything like me, like, man, Keith, you're amazing. I'm going to pat myself on the back. Then God smacks me upside his head and says, okay, you got to face this struggle again so that you can continue to grow. It's like when you prune a tree, right? You prune the tree back, you cut off the bad branches so that the tree is healthy and that it grows. The Israelites' hands were strengthened for what? To rebuild a wall. I want to challenge you on this. How much more should our hands be strengthened for the work of the gospel? How much more should our hands be strengthened for that work? That's a greater work than building walls. We are equipped with the best news that there is. The news of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And yet, our enemies lurk. The naysayers, the doubters, the mockers, the persecutors, all the problems that we're facing. And yet, hear this. Christ has conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. What's the worst thing they can do to us? Kill us? Paul says this, 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Christ has overcome the grave. Lift your heads up, church, and look to Him. Their hands were strengthened to build a wall. Our hands should be strengthened to carry out the gospel to all the ends of the earth, beginning here in this room and reaching out into this community. In His power, in the power of Christ, we stand together, committed to the mission and work of sharing the hope of this, of redemption, okay? Not a better life here and now, not 101 ways that Jesus is going to fix your financial problems or your relational problems or whatever thing you have, but rather that we have the hope of redemption, that we can bring true hope to people that are far from Christ, that have tried everything in life that has failed them time and time and time again, and they have this God-shaped hole in their heart, and we have this good news, and God has charged you with this to bring them the good news. In his power, we stand together. We're committed to the mission and work of sharing the hope of redemption with every lost soul. Rise up, strengthen your hands. My hope echoes these words from the great preacher Jonathan Edwards. I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as possibly I can, Provided what? That they are affected with nothing but the truth. Be affected by the truth this morning that a life lived in Christ is worth it. It's worth the sacrifice and pain. It's worth the delayed gratification. It's worth partnering with people around you. It's worth being in difficult relationships. Because we have a mission and a purpose in life. And we have no excuse not to do that because Christ gave us all of him. Everything. He laid it all down on the line for us. And what a mission it is that we get to love God and we get to love other people just like Jesus has. That we get to see the fame of Christ grow in this community. There is nothing more satisfying than seeing a person who is far from God, far from Christ, come and lay their life down for Jesus and say, I'm following you all of my days. And church, we get to be a part of that. To share the fame of Jesus. You might be saying, but why should I care about that? Because Jesus did it all for you. He came to this earth, he left his throne, he left his place of comfort, and he came and he lived the perfect life for you. We were, we're all sinful, we're all broken, we're all far from God. We all fall short of God's glory, we all fall short of God's holiness, and it's because of that that we should come before Christ and say, Jesus, I will do whatever you ask me to do. Because you've been so good to me that you came and did what I was incapable of doing. Not only were you perfect, but you laid your life on a cross. Your body was ripped apart. Nails driven into your hands and your feet. Your blood was shed. And you covered my sin. 
Upon that cross, you look down at the people, us, sitting at the foot who had nailed him to the cross. And you said, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's what Jesus did for you. And we have to be confronted with sin because it makes his mission so much richer as we go out into the world. Knowing that Jesus did that for us, but that wasn't the end of the story. The grave did not win. On the third day, he rose from the grave. Defeating death. And because of that, we should be the most confident people. Because we're on our knees praying to God. Guide us. Show us what you want us to do. Church, I don't know what that work is for you. Get on your knees before God and say, God, what do you have for me? What's my mission? Who am I supposed to share your glory with? What person am I supposed to love? Who do you have before me, God? What's the wall I'm supposed to rebuild? Show me. And I'm going to keep seeking the means that you've given me, which is to get on my knees to pray, to read your word, and to call you on your promises. Your promise is this, that we go out, that we make disciples. You do that work of converting hearts. We proclaim the gospel. God is at work transforming lives, bringing life, breathing life into dead, lifeless things turning them to him. And that's what he's done for each and every one of us who have called upon the name of Christ. And so this morning, as we, as we wrap up, as we have heard the gospel, as we've reflected on the work of Christ, as we come to the table, each and every week, we get this opportunity to come and to receive communion. And it's beautiful because it reminds us of the great cost of our sin on the cross. And because of that reminder of of God's greatness, we saw in Nehemiah's story that he confessed. He confessed sin when we come to the table. We're reminded of Christ's great sacrifice, that he was innocent, but willingly laid down his life for us. And because of that, we should come to the table this morning and we should remember our Savior. And because of that, we should be repentant. Our hearts should be filled with confession. God, this is what I've done wrong. This is how I have wronged you. I will turn from that. Maybe I haven't made enough time for you in praying and seeking after you. Maybe I haven't made enough time for you in reading your word. God, I'm going to invest in that. Forgive me. Receive the bread, which represents Christ's body that was broken for you on the cross and the juice which represents Christ's blood which is an atonement, a covering for our sin eat and remember your Savior remember what he has done for you and then during the last song we're going to receive an offering, it's a way that we can give back to the church to the mission and work of Jesus Christ some of this money goes out to See lives transformed through the gospel around the world and in this community. You have a part in that by giving to North Bullet Christian Church. And then throughout all of this, we'll be singing, standing and singing. Remembering 
the great love of Jesus Christ on the cross. As he looked down at you and me and he says, I forgive you. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you that all of your word points to Jesus. That we can see Christ throughout each and every page that we turn. Lord, we thank you that you didn't leave us in our sin, but you've brought us into your family. You've adopted us and you've given us the full inheritance. Lord, we thank you that we have great hope in the return of Christ. We have great hope in that day that he comes and he makes all things new. But Lord, we also have great hope that you're at work now. That you're at work through the proclamation of the gospel and the lives of each and every believer in this room as they go out into the workplace, as they love their families, as they love their neighbors, and they share the best news you could ever possibly share. God, charge us with that. Raise us up. Help us to be the boldest witnesses, not obnoxious, but loving, desperate to see lives transformed through the power of the gospel. Lord, help us to reflect as we come to the table. Help us to repent and to flee from sin. Help us to flee from self-righteousness that we could be humbled. Lord, help us to have hearts that are giving, that are thankful for the blessings that you've poured out on us. God, I pray for the person who's skeptical in this room. Lord, I pray for their heart this morning that you would be stirring within them, that they have heard the gospel and that they would respond in repentance and faith. Stir within them, Lord. Draw them to the table to receive the Lord's Supper for the first time. God, and give them the confidence to proclaim their newfound faith to somebody in this room. Jesus, we praise you and thank you for the purpose that you've given us in our lives and the way that you have saved us. We pray these things through your power. Amen.